0: Even so, we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we pray, Lord God, we just. Oh, Lord, we just come with open hands, open hearts, and we're just all here to receive, Lord, what you have for us. And Lord, I am blessed and eager to teach tonight, but God, I pray that it is you that stands here at the podium and that it wouldn't be me. I pray that as all who come, Lord, would also leave being taught something or blessed. And God, I just pray that your spirit would come upon all of us, Lord, that Even for me, Lord, as I'm teaching, that it wouldn't be me again, but that it would be your spirit delivering the word. And that those who are listening, Lord, would be able to be attentive and to hear the words that your spirit has declared. And so, God, as we are here, we just are looking forward and we are eager to what you have to say tonight. We just pray, Lord, and we just say, come, Lord Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And everyone says, amen. Amen. You know, as Tony asked me to kind of fill in tonight, um, I was, I was thinking like, okay, well, like what should be that topic, right? And as these past two weeks have kind of been like a pause from the book of Job, of which we're normally studying, I thought that it would be prudent for us to learn about sin as a Christian, because this idea came to my heart and this idea is demonstrated in Romans chapter seven. It's just the next chapter and you can read it with me, but it's this, it's verses 18 and 19. It says, for I know that in me that is my flesh nothing good dwells for to will is present with me but how to perform what is good I do not find for the good that I will to do I do not do but the evil that I don't want to do it is that that I practice and so when I read that it was kind of like I think back to when I was in high school playing football, and when we were trying to get our squat maxes up beyond 400 pounds, and after you would bring your rack up, you would throw the weight down, and there's just this loud smash on the ground. And when I read that verse, it was that same loud smash, but it was a spiritual one. I thought about it, I was like, man, for to will, to do good, hey, it's there. Like, the power to do good is there, but the desire is not. And so I continue finding myself to do the very things that I hate. And so I ask myself this. Wasn't there supposed to be a change? Right? Isn't sin supposed to be something that I no longer struggle with? If I'm a new creation, why is it that I'm still struggling with old temptations? You see, I relate so much to that verse that Paul's saying here in chapter 7. You know, and because my testimony is that I believe in Jesus just as much as every single one of us in here do as well. But in my moments of losing to my sinful nature, that's when, that's where Paul says, Hey, that which I will to do, I don't do it. When I lose to my sinful nature, when I end up tapping out, I become so full of doubt. Maybe you can relate. I become so full of doubt of the work that God has done in me. And that I become to a point where I'm like, man, Lord, did you even ever save me? Like, is there anything inside of me that could testify to your goodness? Because God, like, I'm a Christian, I believe in you, but why is it that I'm still struggling with the same sin, the same temptations, the same struggle, the same fight that it was years ago? And I relate to this verse in Romans chapter 7, and it's the same sound, it's the same conversation, that same doubt that Satan said to Eve in the Garden of Eden. It said, hey, did, did God really say that you were going to die on the day that you partook of that fruit? Did he really say that? And so in the same way, God says, or uh, sorry, Satan says to me, hey, uh, are you really a Christian? Are you really saved? And so I don't know if you've ever struggled with those voices of doubt, but I certainly have. And so I thought that it would be good for all of us to learn what the Bible speaks on and the topic of sin and being a Christian. Because it's it's there, and it it exists, and so the topic for tonight is literally a guide to deal with sin. And so, if our goal is to learn how to deal with sin as a Christian, then there's no better place to study this than in Romans chapter 6. Because the idea of Romans chapter 6 is simply this. It is that we are no longer slaves to sin. Or in other words, we are no longer forced to follow the desires of death, but rather... How are we called to live? That's the idea of Romans chapter 6, and that's the whole purpose of why we're here tonight. And so Paul begins Romans chapter 6 with this question. Read it there with me. It's verse 1. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And so he asks this question because he's addressing this point that he made previously in chapter 5. See, in chapter 5, Paul was talking about how uh, Adam... He made that decision to sin, and he, through his one choice, Adam condemned all of humanity to death. doesn't matter whether you were there with him in the Garden of Eden, because you are an offspring of Adam, you were condemned with him. And so Paul's talking about that. And so he's making these explanations that all people are sinners, that's there's not a single righteous person, and that sin came into the world through Adam, and it condemned everybody to death. But that just as Adam's one choice condemned everybody to death, Jesus says, one act of righteousness justifies everybody to eternal life. Paul makes that point in chapter 5. And so he takes an additional step to amplify that everybody part, because there's people like myself that would doubt and say, wait, wait, God, uh, am I included on that everyone part? And so Paul takes the extra step to amplify, yes, Ryan, you are included on that extra part. And he says this in verse 20. Read it there with me. It's chapter 5, verse 20. Then he says this, he says, moreover, right? That word moreover is kind of like the icing on a, t- on a cake. It's like, hey, the cake's there, the point's made, but hey, for extra, for extra credit. So moreover, the law entered that the offense, or in other words, guilt might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And so Paul points out two things in verse 20 of chapter five. The first thing is that he points out that our sin is, it abounds. It's not like, oh, maybe you sinned once or twice when you were 16. No, it's like it abounds. It abounded then, it abounds now, and it's going to abound in the future. It is such a great amount that you as a person cannot deal with it, right? The, the root word is uh, abundant, right? It is plentiful. It is excess. It is all excess amount. But notice he says that it is through the law. And so he says that the law came for the purpose to increase, right or our offense before god or in other words the law came to increase our guiltiness before god does that make sense and so the idea here is that and we're, we're kind of seeing this unfortunately on the news is that when in when you live in an area where there is no law when there is no rule of law it is impossible to be a criminal But because God's law, in other words, his eternal law exists, not only is it possible for us to be criminals against God, but it's actually guaranteed that we are criminals against God because our sin is abundant. It is so great that every single law that God has ever written, we are transgressors, not just once, not just twice, but an infinite amount of times. And so he says that our sin is so abounding for the sole purpose that the distance between us and God would become greater, right? And, so, and then, so the second point that he makes is that no matter that distance, no matter the amount of our sin, no matter how great that number is, no matter what you've done, right, it is that grace, God's grace is greater in every single way. Is that his grace will win every single time. That's his second point. Right? And so as Paul is making this 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 point in chapter five of hey, look, although your sin is so big, so abundant, so great, and although God's grace will overcome it every single time, he needs to address this point, and which is that when he asks the question, do we then continue in sin? Right, do we keep our plentifulness of sin for the sole purpose of God's grace to still be abundant? Well, that's an easy question. He says this in verse two, he says, certainly not. You see. This comes to our first point. There's going to be four points tonight of how to deal with our sin. And so this brings us to our first point tonight of dealing with sin. It might be a bit complicated, but this is the first point. Follow it with me. It's that to deal with sin, you have to, listen here, deal with sin. I hope that that's simple enough. See, Paul says, do we stay in our sin for the sole purpose that God's grace towards us would still be this infinite amount? He says, no, absolutely not. And so to amplify this, do do not just sit around in our depraved filth of our flesh, because our flesh, every single time, will desire that which is sinful, which is evil, which is contrary to the nature of God. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, he says that if your right eye causes you to sin, he doesn't say, hey, close it. He doesn't say, look somewhere else. He doesn't say, move to a different state. He says, gouge it out. And throw it away. Because it is better for you to lose one part of your body for then your whole body to be thrown into hell. So the idea here of dealing with your sin is to literally prevent your own self, your own nature, to desire the things of sin. Does that make sense? We have to almost have this mindset of, I am going to every single time choose what is really bad for me. So I literally have to put on like a spiritual vest that's going to keep me like constrained. Because if my nature is naturally going to want to desire death, then I, as a spiritually awoken Christian, have to do what I have to do to make sure that when my flesh reaches out for sin, it, the only thing it might grab is like a white lie. Which, don't get me wrong, I'm not justifying that. But what I'm saying is that you have to continue to cut away at your flesh, right? And then so he makes his argument for this, right? He says in verse 2, he says, how shall we who die to sin live any longer in it. And so his argument isn't hey, sin is bad for you. His argument isn't hey, this is like a better option. His idea is you are dead to it. Read it read it with me again. He says, "How shall we who died to sin still live any longer?" in it and he illustrates this point of being dead to something in romans chapter 7 verses 1 and 2 flip over it's just the next paragraph you should be able to see it romans chapter 7 verse 1 2 and just read it with me real quick it says or do you not know brethren for i speak to those who know the law that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So Paul is using the same example of marriage to demonstrate our relationship to sin. How interesting. And so using the concept of marriage... Paul is illustrating that if we are Christians and we choose to remain in sin, it's kind of like having our spouse pass away and choosing to still file on our taxes, married filing jointly, right? It's that this doesn't exist for you anymore. This is something that is gone. It's not for you to remain in it. This is a stage of life that you need to move forward, right? And so the concept of death— That Paul is making here is something that's relatively new. It's not a concept that people are just regularly talking about. It's not like a, oh, hey, Jesus loves you, right? That's something that we always talk about. John 3 16, it's a verse we all know. And so being dead to sin, it's not something Paul's ever mentioned before, but if anything, Paul's actually mentioned, hey, you were actually dead in your sin. He's never said you're dead to sin, so this is the first time he's ever mentioned that. And so he needs to describe, hey, what does that actually look like, right? So he says in verse 3, read it with me, he says, or do you not know, That as many of us, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. I want you to take that and just kind of hold on to it for a minute. Verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Which brings me to my second point tonight of dealing with with our sin. And the second point is that we must know, Church, we must know confidently that through Jesus we live a new life. See, it's one thing to be a Christian and to not know the plans that God has for you, and to like, you know, if I were to cast my my poker chips, I would probably pass them on to the, you know the idea of Christianity. It's not like that. It's knowing confidently that it is Jesus who sits in heaven. And so our second point to dealing with our sin is just that. It's that we have to know that through Jesus we live a new life. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, that what happened is that we were baptized into his death? And so he makes it clear. He says the knowledge here of our association with Jesus through our baptism is just as important to know as just as I was saying our salvation through faith. And so as I'm saying, it's just as important for us to know, hey, John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for us, it's just as important to know that as it is to know I am dead to sin. That relationship has been severed. It no longer exists. And that not only does it no longer exist, but now I live a new life. This shouldn't be an odd concept. This shouldn't be something that when I'm, uh, saying, hey, we're dead to sin, that people go, what? This should be something that we know, right? And the idea of why is that we can remember, hey, look, I'm no longer that version of Ryan Meza. And so when those temptations come for all of us, that we remember, man, why is it that this temptation, this sin is just so particularly strong to me? Whatever it is, we all have it. That that thing, that it just—it just for some reason, it just has a way to get us. That when that thing comes, When that temptation comes, when when Satan offers and says, did God really say that we can remember and say, wait a second, this relationship's been severed and that I live a new life in Jesus Christ. And so he says that through baptism, he says, or do you not know, brethren, that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. And so he mentions baptism twice. And so there's a side point to be made here. And it's an important point to be made. Is that What Paul's point here is not, is that Paul's point is not saying that when you were baptized, wherever that happened, you know, for me it was a pool, for someone's notion, wherever it is, wherever that event took place, it was not that physical event that caused you to be baptized into the life of Jesus. It's a spiritual event that takes place. The baptism into water is a demonstration, church, of what takes place during that event. It's saying, hey, look, there was a change in me. My soul has been baptized into the life of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do is kind of have like a birthday and I want everyone to see, hey, this is what happened. And I am declaring for myself that Jesus Christ is my own personal Lord and Savior. And so the idea to baptize means to immerse or to cover over. And so when Paul says that we were baptized into Christ Jesus, the idea there is that the baptism that we've experienced was that we were covered with Jesus. Does that make sense? And then so the event of water baptism, like I said, is that demonstration. It's not that once you are baptized... And I make this point so that no one would know, okay, well, you know what? I think the next step for me to really have good victory against my sin is I got to go find a pool somewhere. But there has to be spiritual change inside of your soul. And so most of us are just by recognizing that that's happened. And so, but we need to be aware as a church that even though that has happened for us, we need to be aware that, okay, it wasn't the pool. It wasn't the ocean. It was the saving work of Christ inside of my heart. It was the fact that I am baptized into the Lord, right? And so to reiterate, when we are baptized, we're lowered into the water just as Jesus Christ was lowered into the grave. And then we're risen from the water just as Christ was risen from the dead. And so Paul shows this in verse 4. Look what he says. He says, just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in a newness of life. And so the idea here is that when Jesus was on the cross, we were there with him. When Jesus rose from the dead, we also rose from the dead. And when he entered eternity, we were there with him. And so this isn't to dilute the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place. It's not to dilute that. It's not to remove from the purpose of the gospel. It's to associate our own life to be there with Jesus Christ during his death and during his resurrection. Read what it says with me in verse 5 and 7. For it says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And so when when Paul says in verse 5, for if we have been united with Christ, it's more of a for since we have been united with Christ. It's more of a, hey, I'm talking to the church here, right? This is something for us to really grow on. It's because all of us have been united with Jesus in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be made with him, with Jesus in the likeness of his resurrection. And so what he's saying is like, because the following is already true, then remember that we were also going to be made in the newness of his resurrection, right? And so, like I said, to hold on to that dead to sin point, keep on holding on. We're getting close. And so when he says likeness of his resurrection, he's following the order of events. He's saying, okay, we already know that Jesus died. We already know that Jesus was risen again. And so if we are made in his death, we are made like in his death, then we are also made to be in the likeness of his resurrection. And so he says in verse 6, he says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And so Paul, he kind of arrives at this point of being dead to sin, right? Like when we ask, okay, well, what does that really mean to be dead to sin? Because Ryan, I'm still alive. I'm still kicking, right? So what does it really mean to be dead to sin? And so his purpose is, is that the purpose of being made in the likeness of Jesus's death was not to just merely die, was not to just kind of be uh, irrelevant, if you would. But the purpose of being made in the likeness of his death was so that we would be made in the likeness of his resurrection. Because we all know that Jesus Christ did not just come to die. We all know that he's not just like every other prophet in every other religion who they all came and they all died. The purpose of Jesus was not just to die. The purpose of Jesus was to die and to rise again. Our purpose of our faith is to die and then to be rise to be risen again. Does that make sense? Do we see that? Right? And so the purpose of, Of death, right? The purpose of our death with Jesus, right? Again, was not to just be irrelevant, but see what it says in verse 6. He says that our old man was crucified with him, for the sole purpose was to say that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And then in verse 7, he says, for he who has died has been set free from sin. So when we address that point of man, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I've been a Christian for all these years. Why is it that I still struggle with these things? Why is it that I still find myself X, Y, and Z, right? And and we all know that as I'm saying that, there's a specific thing that's like right here. We're like, man, that's it. And when we ask ourselves, why is it? that's happened, right? We have to know that we who have been set free from sin were no longer slaves of sin and that the sole purpose of death was so that we would be set free, And this brings us to our third point tonight, is that we are no longer slaves of sin, but that we are free in Christ. And so we must live like freed men. Imagine if when Jesus called unto Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out, that he stayed there in the grave. That would kind of like, would it make sense? He's covered in dead robes. There's probably, you know, a a nasty dead bed that he's laying on, you know. And I even kind of imagine that he might be even chained up or something. Why? I don't know. But imagine if Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, and he never came out from the grave. That wouldn't make any sense. And so if Jesus has called unto you and says, Ryan, come out from the grave, there's no purpose for us to remain in that grave But we are freed men, and so we must walk like freed men. And so when we ask the question, okay, well, Ryan, like, I get that we're free. But, but dude, like, I'm still struggling with sin, man. Like, I still get tempted. I still get all these struggles. Well, I want to show you what freedom truly is by showing you what slavery looks like. See, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 says this. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once called or sorry, in when you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, to be enslaved, right, it is to have no power over sin. To be enslaved is to have no knowledge of what holiness is. To be enslaved is to follow blindly the spirit of the world. In other words, to be enslaved means to simply just follow Satan. And it's so crazy because it's like when we take these concepts... And we apply them to real life slavery that's happened in history. One of the common things that has always happened is they don't allow them to read. You can't learn how to read, right? And you can't, I mean, they can't learn how, like, how, um, how maps work. So you can't even know where you're at. And the only thing you're allowed to do is to follow what your master says. And so you're just following blindly these things because you're a slave. You don't have freedom here. But the Bible says that we have been granted freedom from sin. So we are no longer enslaved to sin. But then this kind of brings me a question to my mind, and it's that if we are set free from sin, then why is it that there's still that temptation? Why does that still come around? And to tell you the truth, it's the same question that could be asked of, if God created, I mean, I would say that since God created the Garden of Eden to be perfect, then why was Satan in the Garden? And the same question is, if we are freed men, if we have Uh, salvation in the Lord, and we're not slaves of sin, then why does temptation still come? Because of this. When we are granted our freedom, God doesn't take us, pluck us from that situation, and move us to a completely perfect environment, at least to say not yet, because we know that that's coming. We know that a day will come when temptation and death and sin and all the likes will be gone, and that we won't struggle with those things, but that when Christ gives us our freedom, It's not that we're necessarily removed from the situation. It's that he gives us the ability to understand holiness and to be able to discern the difference between what is good and what is right. And so it's not that if we're a warrior that God pulls us from the front line, but it's more so that if we're a warrior, God gives us a sword to fight. Is that when we're no longer slaves of sin, it's that we have the ability to fight against sin. Does that make sense? It's not that as a Christian you're never supposed to sin again or feel temptation ever again or to ever feel that you're, you're, you're perfect and you've attained, but it's that God gives you the ability. The Bible says that we have received every spiritual blessing, right? And so we have received that through our freedom. Our freedom gives us the ability to reject sin. It was the whole reason why Satan was in the Garden of Eden. For the sole purpose of Eve to say, hey, listen, I follow the Lord. He's already given me the commandment. I'm not to eat of that. Satan might still be around your foot. He might still be calling at you saying, hey, this, that, are you sure? Are you sure you don't want to do this? But as a freed person in the Lord, you have the strength. Don't doubt yourself. You have the strength. You have the ability to say, no, I am a freed person. I am called to live a new life. And so Paul explains this even more. Read with me in verse 8. He says, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now again, so we've already seen that in this text when the Bible says now if, it's not an if, as if it's possible to be one way or the other, but it's now since, right? Now because, he says, now because we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. He's following the order of events. He says, okay, we already know that Jesus died, and we already know that he rose again. Now because we're made in the likeness of his death, then that means that we are also in the likeness of his resurrection, right? And so what he's doing is he's taking what we already know. He's taking the same gospel that we already believe in, the same gospel that we already know confidently, and he's taking that to build this ending point, right? And so he's reiterating what we already believe. He says this, he says, we know that Christ having been raised from the dead, he dies no more for death no longer has dominion over him. And so when Paul says in verse nine that Christ dies no more, he is confirming again what we already know. That we already believe that Christ was raised from the dead and that death no longer has dominion over him. What that means is that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he never needed to return back to earth to die again because, oh, Carl over there was, you know, he missed the train and he needs to be died for. No, It was that when Jesus died, he paid for the penalty of sin of the sins past. So we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, Moses, all of them, and the sins present. So we're talking about Judas Iscariot. We're talking about Peter. We're talking about Pilate. And then sin's future. So now we're talking about us. Is that when Jesus died, he took the sins of eternity, and he put it on his shoulders, and he paid for them. And so he doesn't have to die again. It's, it, it's done. It's, it's, that penalty has been confirmed. It is the idea of why he says it is finished is because it never has to happen again. And so Paul says, we already know this. And we know that death does not have dominion over him, right? And then so in verse 10, he says, for the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. And so the, again, like the work that Jesus has done was it was one and done. It was It's not a something that he has to do again. All to make this point, which is our fourth point, that once we have received our eternal life, the moment we have declared, Jesus, you are my savior, the moment that we have become a new creation, that it is it is unconceivable to think that we would still be subjected to sin but that the power of God has declared us free once and for all. It is that once we have received a new life, we do not continue to die, as in we do not continue to remain in our sin through our, through our life in Christ, but we choose to live to God. It is the whole point to wrap up here in verse 11, which Paul says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus our Lord. See, folks, this is right here the most practical way to deal with our sin. This is the number one way that any of us, if we're struggling as a Christian with sin, if we're struggling with temptation, if there's just one thing like, man, Ryan, I just, I can't seem to get myself over this hump, right? This is the most practical way. It's right here in verse 11. Let's reread it. He says, likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, folks, it's it's that after we have made our confession, our faith, right? And we have become resurrected, a new creation in Jesus. It is that there is no purpose or reason or any other idea for us to continue to be in the sin that we once were. But instead, we are to present ourselves to God. You see, Jesus' life is the perfect example in all things absolutely, but here specifically, because when Jesus died, he died to sin once. He was on that cross once. He never needed to die again. And the remainder of his life, after he rose again, the remainder of Jesus's life in eternity, he will live that as a servant to the Lord. And so that example is the most practical way for us as Christians to avoid sin. It is that, hey, we were once dead in our sins. We have died to our sin. And now the life that we live in Christ, we now live to God. It is a whole other purpose. It's that our destination has changed. It's that once we were over here, but now we're completely focused on this other task. And so let me read what, what Paul says in verses 13 and 14. It's just, at the, it's just one more sentence down in chapter 6. He says, Do not present yourself as your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But he says, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. If you have a Bible and you like to underline and highlight, highlight that right there. Present yourself to God as instruments for righteousness. That is the most important idea of our verses tonight. It is that to avoid sin, we need to present ourselves to God as tools of righteousness it's not that if you are struggling with a certain sin it's not that okay i really got to make sure i never look at another bottle it's not like that but to avoid sin it is to present yourself to god as a tool of righteousness to illustrate it's the argument is not to attempt to prevent temptation coming in any way but it's to take yourself to take your your tools and to approach god and say hey lord i am here We've been in Job these past few weeks, and so we would remember when, when God, or when it was written in uh, Job chapter 1, when it says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. I kind of have like this idea in my mind, when all the angels of God came, and they bowed before the Lord, and they said, hey, we're here as your servants. What do you have us to do? What is your plan for us? Where would you have us go, right? And so when, God's, when, the, when, the, when, when Paul writes here that our purpose it's not to continue to live in the life of death, but to present ourselves to God. It's that just in the same way that a king, or that, a, that a servant would to a king. is saying, Lord, I am your servant. What would you have with me? And so when, when he says in verses 13 and 14, he says, present your members. He's talking about your hands and feet. The very things that you would use in the past to sin with. And so he's saying, now the old tools that you, once to, that you once used for unrighteousness, take those very same tools and present them to God and say, how would you use me as a tool of righteousness? And so this isn't to say, as an ending point, to end, or sorry, to uh, busy yourself with the work of the church. Absolutely, the church needs help and it needs hands. But righteousness is not, uh, is not attained through work it is not attained through what we do for the church it's not saying hey to prevent sin continue to come to church more regularly those are good things but that's not what paul's saying here it is that to present yourself to make yourself available to the lord it's 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 it's, it's to think of yourself as a tool in his toolbox and to always be ready to be used and so it's the same idea what jesus said in the garden that i will be done it is when God spoke to Isaiah in, in, in Isaiah chapter 8, and he said, For whom shall we send, and who shall go for us? And Isaiah rose his hand and said, Here I am, Lord, send me. To present ourselves to the Lord is to eagerly be waiting there for him. You know, I remember when I was playing football, my, uh, my starting coach, my, my offensive coordinator, you know, he always paid attention to the kids that were right here on his hip. Because when somebody went out, when someone made a bad mistake, and with our team, we weren't good football players, so people made mistakes all the time. The coach wanted to be like, oh, get Mason out of there. Who's next? Get in there. And whoever was right here, he was going to send in. He wasn't going to send the guy that's way the heck down that sideline. He was going to send the guy that was saying, hey, coach, here I am. Send me in. Send me in. Send me in. I want to play. And so my question to us is like, hey, look, are we doing that to the Lord? Are we saying, Lord, I want to be used for righteousness. I want to be used for your sake. I want to be used for your kingdom. But if we're thinking like, you know, oh, man, I, oh, I just got to busy myself with all these other things, this and this and this and this and this, then we're not going to be used as much. If we're down the sideline way the heck over there, we're not going to be used. But if we're right here presenting ourselves to the Lord, saying, Lord, use me. Here I am, send me. Then, then sin, then temptation, then the struggles, those go away in time. Because you're not focusing on that. You have less time now because you're working for the Lord in his righteousness. And that those things they go away naturally. And so to close with a verse tonight as an encouragement before you know we all head out and we all continue with our lives. I would want to close with a verse that Paul says in Romans chapter 12. And it's verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. You see, folks, we're going to be fighting this battle, and it's an uphill battle to tell you the truth of temptation and sin for the rest of our lives. There will never be a point I don't know, I'm only 23, so, I, you know, hopefully. <laughs> but to me, at least, from what I've seen so far is that I've never had a point where I'm like, man, I'm just doing real good today. <laughs> but it's always finding myself weak. You know, but I, just, I remember what Jesus said to Paul in, 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 in 1 Corinthians. He says, but it is my grace that is sufficient for you. Right? And so we're going to be fighting this uphill battle for the rest of our lives. But we need to remember that that we have been set free from sin and that it's commanding power, it's ability to force you to do what you don't even want to do. The things that you are ashamed of, the things that you hate, that power has been removed. It's gone. It's dead. And that you are a new creation in the Lord. And so just as Paul says, I beseech you, so do I. I implore you as a church. Let us present ourselves before the Lord. Let us be ready. Let us be those kids hopping up and down on the sidelines saying, coach, send me in. Because the Lord has works of righteousness, especially in this day and age. We can all agree that. And if the Lord has a work for righteousness, wouldn't we want to be their part of it? Why don't we pray?